homecoming. And it's coming out of Ezra chapter 2, all 70 verses of it. You may be sitting there thinking, what in the world am I doing with 70 verses in Scripture? But I want us to look at the message that's here and not just write it off. You might think, you know, it's a lot here, but maybe there really isn't anything here for me today. But there really, I assure you, from God's Word is. It's about a homecoming. It's about a homecoming. Those words, that idea, homecoming, is familiar to us, and it's something where we think about, you know, going to a football game, maybe a college football game, where we as alum have gone back, or, you know, Grace Christian just had a homecoming event where people gather together with familiar faces to sort of um, regrasp what shaped them in an earlier time period. Maybe you think of homecoming, that word, that idea, as actually going to your home, your old neighborhood, where you grew up where you did things for the first time, fishing, hunting, connecting with friends, making friends, losing friends, experiences that shaped you and made you who you are. Do you ever have that desire to, to go back home, to re-engage with your moorings, to reconnect with family? Homecoming. In the church, there's a sense of homecoming that we should experience. I know some of us uh, come from out of state and have come from really great churches that we love and when we go back to those churches that's kind of a version of homecoming that connects with a text like this you're you're going home to worship with the people that you love there right you you hear familiar preaching from a familiar preacher or you sing worship songs that you're familiar with that connect you back to that unique church I'm, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going with uh, most of the elders to the Shepherds Conference, which is in Southern California, and that's where there'll be 4,000 preachers and elders gathered together. It's sort of a recharging event where you resonate with each other and shout to the Lord and recharge your batteries. But let me just tell you something. Even with all the speaking and lectures and teaching that I'll hear while I'm at Shepherds Conference, the most important thing for me is going back to that church because I was there as a worshiper for four years. It's a homecoming of sorts. There's elders there. There are pastors there. There are people there as part of that church whom I love. You've all experienced that to one degree or another, I'm sure. And if you flip it around for a second and you think about how the Lord might send you out one day from Alaska to go to another state or another part of the world, what should be your most important idea as you launch out to somewhere else? Well, it's what church are you going to be a part of is what I would offer and venture to say, right? What, what church am I going to connect with? You know, the people that are there, are they going to encourage me? How's my spiritual life going to go in terms of this new home that I'm going to? What's the worship like? What's the preaching like? What, are, what is the leadership like? What's the atmosphere of the church? Those are the questions that sort of enter into our minds as we think about what church we're going to integrate into and sink our teeth, teeth into, right? The church. Now, 
I sort of came up with three reasons why that doesn't go well sometimes when you go to a church and you don't feel welcomed. Uh, if you've ever gone to a church and had that sort of I don't belong feeling, then uh, you know perhaps these are some reasons why. Number one, perhaps you don't feel like you belong because you've come to a church that's not very warm or loving. Maybe you've gone to a place that did not receive you and welcome you in. Maybe it's the church's problem. Number two, it could be that it's sort of your own spiritual problem in that you go to a church and maybe you're not yet a believer and you think you're a believer but you're not a believer and you're dead spiritually and so that's why you don't feel connected or like you're belonging to the church family. That's a very important litmus test. Why, why don't I belong? Is the church unloving to me or am I spiritually dead or, or in sin so that I don't feel like connecting with this family? Those are sort of some ideas. There's a third reason though and I think our text really opens this up. It's, it's the story of Ezra chapter 2 and it's this idea. Sometimes in our spiritual lives we do not have the solid assurance of our own salvation. It's not that we're in horrible sin, and it's, and it's not that we're necessarily dead spiritually. It's just we're ambivalent. We're just up in the air about where we are spiritually. We just don't know if we're believers or not. The assurance of salvation. And in this text, in this story in Ezra 2, you have a group of believers that we're going to look at who did not have the assurance of their acceptance in this journey home. Now, we've talked about Ezra, chapter 2, or Ezra, the story that's going on, and that is that um, the southern kingdom of Judah had been captured by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years before. They'd been taken up in exile into Babylonia, and it was about 50,000 of them that were there, and they were sort of integrated into a worldly, secularized culture there. Seventy years came up. The prophecies were being fulfilled. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says the people were stirred in their hearts. They were sort of waking up to who they really are. And they, they grasped the idea that God was sending them home. A 900 mile journey caravanning back down to the southern kingdom called Judah. Specifically to the city of Zion, Jerusalem to re construct the temple of God that had been burned down by Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon 70 years before. So they're sort of poised to go on this journey home. What we're going to find here in this list of people that are going home, you know, 46,000 or some in this sort of first wave of people that are going home, what we're going to find here is that you have some people who have the assurance of their acceptance and they have the assurance that they are part of this community and you have some people that they're not on the church roll. They're, they're not on the list and they're sort of displaced and they're, they're wondering, do I really fit in or not? I mean, this is kind of an ancient text, but let me just bring it to you this morning to say there are some of you, I'm sure, that wonder, where am I spiritually? You know, in God's role, in, in God's church directory called the Book of Life, is my name written there? When, when Jesus comes, is he calling me home or not? Well, that's the struggle in this text for some. 
You have some that are secure in their identity in Christ. They know where they're going. They know they're part of this caravanning first wave, being led by Zerubbabel, going home, and they know they're a part of that. That's their routine. They know they're going for a purpose to reconstitute the worship and glory of God in Zion. And then there are some people who are just struggling to make it and wondering if they're really supposed to be part of this program at all. That's what we find here. That's why I had Pastor Nate Davis read the whole thing because that's the story embedded in this genealogy. You have here two main categories for God's travelers. And look, before you turn this off, before you switch off and say, you know, I really don't want to sit and, you know, sort of mull through a genealogy. Let me just tell you this. This is not Ancestry.com time. I mean, we're not basically, you know, looking at these genealogies in some sort of superficial sense to say, well, where did that person live and where geographically was that? You know, it's like us looking online and saying, you know, I was related way back when to Jesse James and that sort of DNA has traveled up and that's why I have a snarky attitude sometimes. No, that's not what we're doing. This is about fitting in. It's about things working out for you spiritually in a gospel community. That's what this is about. That's a big, big part of our hearts is, am I connecting at church? Am I connecting in my gift, in my talent, in my ability in the body, or am I displaced and why? And there's a group of people that felt displaced that needed to persevere through that and get through that. And I want to show you from this text how they did that. But we're going to start with the people, first of all, who had the assurance of their salvation. These were the travelers with assurance, verses 1 through 58. Travelers with assurance. And the first group are the leaders in verse 2. I don't want to skip over verse 1, though. Verse 1 talks about the fact that the people were going to the province. The province is just Judah. It had been, it had been whittled down. It was the southern kingdom, but now it's under Persian control. This group is going um, under um, the leadership of King Cyrus, who still has control of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so it's called a province where they're going. A little bit sad. There's a bookending idea here that Nebuchadnezzar had burned the place down and then taken them captive. And then now this group, this remnant group, this sort of like 10% type group from God's people is returning back to Jerusalem. It's sort of a bookending, um, quick snapshot idea. They're not even talking about this treacherous journey, really. That's not the concern of this text. It's, it's, it's going to happen. They're going home, but the concern is deeper and more spiritual. It's whether or not people had the assurance of salvation, whether or not they fit in. Verse 2, the leaders, they were assured they came with Zerubbabel. You have 11 names listed here in verse 2, but if you parallel that with, with Nehemiah 7, which picks up on the same genealogy, there was a name that was sort of lost in a scribal error written later. But you really have 12 names that are represented here representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That idea, that theme of 12 tribes and that being solid is important because God has always been faithful to keep his covenant promise with his people. 
And James 1.1 even talks about how in the New Testament that Jewish heritage was carrying forth. James 1.1, James wrote to the 12 tribes, those that were part of the diaspora, Jewish believers. And so you have the list of, of 12 leaders, beginning with Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. He's a governor. He was part of the line, the kingly line of Jehoiakim, who had sinned and sort of brought a curse into the line. But Zerubbabel is still a leader and the governor of Judah and part of the messianic line that leads to Christ. And you can see that in Matthew 1, 12 and 13. Zerubbabel, strong man, strong governor, sort of a spiritual political leader. And he's married up with or paralleled with the next name, which is Jeshua or Joshua. Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The Greek version of Joshua is Jesus. Okay? And Joshua is the high priest of Zechariah 3. This isn't the Joshua that took over for Moses. This is um, the, the high priest, the holy man of Israel, the one who is the litmus test in heaven in terms of how spiritual is the people of God now. And if you look in Zechariah chapter 6, just turn over there in your Bibles, you see that, that Joshua is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. He's actually called the uppercase branch, the branch in verse 12. It says that, you know, as these exiles were going, verse 11, as they come to the city of Jerusalem, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. They're crowning the priest leader here. Why? Verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. This is an allusion to Christ. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Who's building it? Zerubbabel or Joshua, well, both. And this is a picture of political and spiritual leadership being married into one person, a picture of Jesus Christ himself, the true builder of the temple, the true builder of God's people for his worship. So you think these leaders had the assurance of their salvation? You think they knew who they were and where they were going? Absolutely, they did. But then you have a second group of people. These are people who were finding their confidence that they were part of this group, this pilgrimage, based on their heritage, based on their heritage, based on their family name. These are people that are going, okay, I'm stirred. I, I, I know I need to go. Remember, we were in, they were in exile. They were comfortable in Babylon. They weren't slaves there. They were integrated into a secular society, and God was calling them home to reconstitute fellowship and worship in Jerusalem. So, so they're waking up and they're going, okay, am I really authentic? Is this real? Where's my name? And so they're finding their name and their, their family name in the list, verses 3 through 20. We're snooping the, the church roll right here. And there's 15,604 men who are identified. And they're above 20 as they would come into the accounting. This isn't spiritual. This isn't social groupings. This is spiritual credentials about whether or not you are authentic. And again, two generations are represented in this 70 years. And their heritage matters a lot. Okay, now 
verses 21 through 35. You're wondering, how am I going to get through 70 verses? Well, we're, we're, we're cruising through. Verses uh, 21 through 35, you had 8,540 men who found their assurance according to their city. That's what's going on. Look at the first city I'm identifying here in verse 21. The sons of Bethlehem. Just don't just skip over that. You know, that's the little town of Bethlehem. That's the grouping of people that are going there. Okay? That's, they're going there before 400 years of silence before Jesus comes. In that little town, that prophesied place for Jesus the Messiah to come. That place where David was raised. That place where they went, these exiles went, and that place where Jesus, our Savior and Lord, was born. Jesus' town tucked right in there. And now you have people in verses 36 through 58 who are establishing their identity as part of God's people according to their temple role. First of all, you have some priests. These are all different people, you know, and with different gifts, different talents, different ways to identify why they fit in. Well, this group here is sort of the top tier servants in the temple. And they are the ones who are saying, look, I am commissioned by God to intercede on behalf of the people. It's a very important role. And if you look at all the numbers, it's about one in ten of, of the whole group are priests. They're going to be part of worship here. How important is worship? I mean, uh, the, the general thrust of Ezra chapter 2 is that this multi-thousand person caravan is going to worship. I mean, they are taking a 900 mile trip to church. That's what they're doing. I mean, that's what they care about. I think sometimes it's easy for us to say, look, church is a once a week routine. And about 50-some times a year, I actually go there and I practice worship. But worship has to be sort of the centerpiece of your life for you really to understand this. To be identified as a priest is everything to these people. Okay, I fit in because I have a role, I have a gift, I have a way that I can be used of the Lord in worship. Identified here, we're going to look at priests, Levites who help the priests, singers who are part of the choir, and then we're going to see gatekeepers who are manning the door. And then you have slave servants who are sort of in the total background doing menial tasks to make it all work out. Do you think this way about your own life? Where do I fit in? You know, I think my name is written in the book of life as a believer, and I... I I have this gift and this way that I serve in kingdom work, and that is who I am. That is one of my number one identity markers, is I'm a worshiper of God. I heard one person say it this way, look, if we have no interest in worship here on earth, why do we think we're going to fit in one day up there in heaven? Why do we think we're part of that routine, that scene for eternity, where the theme of heaven is worship? Temple worship in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of eternity in heaven. That's what we do here as we gather as God's new covenant people, as the church, the temple of the living God. We worship God in preparation 
for heaven. And heaven is a timeless eternity of always worshiping. You know, I think one of the reasons why we don't flame up in our hearts about worship on Sundays or it's not compelling for us to worship publicly is because we have a small flicker of a flame in our hearts in terms of our private worship. And it's important for us to not pit public worship against private worship or even to say one is more important than the other, but both fuel each other and should. If your flame is small and flickering and you're struggling to worship, then get out there in public worship with people. Serve anyway. You say, well, I don't feel spiritual yet. Start serving and let the flame grow as you serve and as you're accountable to the body and as you put yourself out there. And vice versa, if you say, man, you know, uh, I, I don't really get into worship publicly so much here. My flame is kind of small here. Well, then charge it up privately. Worship God. Practice the spiritual disciplines privately. And it will enhance your worship publicly. Both feed each other. Well, let's look at the priest. The priests originally were grouped under 24 groupings under King David. But now it's only a mere four. It's been sort of whittled down, but it's very, very important. One out of ten people in this group are the priests. And I think the song that they were singing was Psalm 84, 1 through 10. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Why do I think that? Well, because in Babylon they couldn't really practice worship. They couldn't practice public worship. Remember Daniel? Hey, prayed three times and was put in the lion's den. Really wasn't something that you could do publicly where you could offer sacrifices. And these people, both young and old, were thinking, we are going to bring temple worship back publicly. And we can do it. And God is calling us to do that. So they were filled in their hearts to be part of this. Then in verse 40, you have the Levites. The Levites, they used to lead the temple worship. And then in Numbers chapter 3, they were actually relegated underneath the Aaronic priesthood. I bring that up for one reason. Sometimes being a worship leader or being part of a worship group and community means that you do things that maybe aren't your first preference. You know, you're serving the priest. You're, you're a little bit behind the scenes. You're not going into the Holy of Holies like the priests are. You're a little bit more the servant. You've been relegated to that, but you get good with that. And you enjoy the worship ministry that God has fashioned for you to do. You know what I did when I left seminary? I became a children's pastor. I was the pastor to the diapers. I'm serious. Four years of college, uh, Bible college, four years of seminary, and what opened up for me was a children's pastorate, and I really did not want to do it. But you know what I found is I found that as I entered into the lives of these children that needed the gospel seed sown into their hearts, the Lord opened up my eyes to see that I was investing in kingdom work, and I was equipping parents, fathers, and mothers to get involved in family worship and raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We created a nursery team that freed people up to be able to worship in the sanctuary while their children were taken care of in the back. It's a heart to, to paint the glory of God over ministries that really are thankless jobs. You're not going to get a whole lot of attaboys from toddler two, I tell you what. You're really not. 
But the Lord's in all kinds of ministries, and even these Levites that were in the background serving the priests. It was one Levite per 58 priests. Not a glamorous job, but they were willing to go. And then in verse 41, you have the singers. Now, the singers here, according to verse 65, you have some male and female singers. You might have some singers that were singing secular songs, but primarily the songs that are being sung are spiritual, and it's the choirs. It's the people who are involved in the worship ministry, people who are wanting to, to facilitate and enhance worship through the voice that God has given them. It reminds me of uh, what I've read before in Psalm 137. You might look over there, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4. This is the testimony of the singers in Babylon. They were discouraged in exile and wanting to go home. Psalm 137, it says, By the waters of Babylon, this is where they were in exile, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung our lyres, we hung our harps. For there our captors required us of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. These singers were discouraged. They were saying, look, I'm hanging it up. I'm hanging my basketball shoes up. I'm laying my instrument down. And they're mocking me. They're wanting me to sing, and I don't want to sing. And I'm just sitting down by this river under this willow tree, and I'm bummed out. And then there's this self-challenge in Psalm 137. If I forget about Jerusalem, if I forget about what I'm really all about, then just take my skill away from me altogether. In other words, there's this idea of having a true passion to worship, and these singers were now impassioned to use their gift for God. There's a lot in this genealogy. There's a lot here. There's a lot to connect to. We'll look at uh, verse 42 of Ezra 2. The gatekeepers. The gatekeepers were the people who manned the doors of the temple. That's what's going on. It's people who opened the door and then would close the door. And they would close the door so that you would take away the disturbance of the outside where people were focusing on worship on the inside. And we do that here. You have people who man the doors, ushers, greeters. That's what this is talking about. Psalm 84.10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know what that's saying? I'd rather have any task that's offered to me in the, in the community of faith than find myself on the outside. I don't want to be on the outside. You know, one day in heaven, we won't care if we're summa cum laude, magna, magna cum laude, or anything. We just want to graduate, right? We just want to walk across the stage and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my master. And, and that's, that's what we want to hear. We want to cross the finish line. We want to be a doorkeeper for God. That's it. We want to serve the Lord with gladness. And then you have temple servants. This is the word slave, verses 43 
through 58 slaves. These are the ones that were captured. They're MIAs, they're POWs that were actually captured by Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. They were outside of the community of faith. They were outside of the southern kingdom. They weren't Israelites. And then they found themselves interwoven into God's plan anyway. It's something bad that happened to them that turned out to be a good thing. It's the best way I can see it. And there's a lot of servants who, as you read about them, they generally just want to go. They want to be a part of this. It's like they came in and became commissioned into temple service, sort of forced into that. And they looked at the sacrifice and the sacrificial system of how sins can be atoned for. And they woke up and said, you know, that's for me. And I'm part of this. Ezra, uh, later on, when he takes the second wave of exiles home, is going to be calling out for more priests, more Levites, and more temple servants. We, we need more of you. You're, you're dignified people in the kingdom work. You have the assurance of your salvation, your acceptance in the community. Why? Because you've got a role. You've got a name. You've got a territory that you're going to connect with. These are travelers that had assurance. 33% of the, of the slaves were having foreign names, but a bad situation had brought them into the family of God. They were all of a sudden part of the sanctuary of truth. It's all of our testimonies. We were foreigners and we were brought in. We were not part of the Jews. We were grafted in. We were outside of the church. We were under Satan's rule. We were brought in. We're slaves. We're servants. We're willing servants to do things for the kingdom of God because God has changed us and brought us in to the sanctuary of truth. Now, some of you might be like this crowd that struggled with the assurance of salvation. The knowledge, the confidence that you were part of the team. This is verses 59 through 70. Travelers without assurance. Begins in verse 59 with the dilemma. Look at 59. This is sort of where the storyline picks up in full color. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah and Tel Harsha, Cherub. Three, you have sort of three clans. Cherub, Adon, and Emur. What, what happened? They, they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Something went wrong. Their names aren't found. They're not on the record. They're not connecting to their property back home. They, they can't figure out why they're not part of the team. There is a dilemma here. We're not talking about a pride issue. It's whether or not on a deeper level, they really fit in at all with this community of travelers. Am I a pilgrim at all? I know that some of you have struggled like I did. I struggled the first year into my salvation as to whether or not I was a true believer. I did go through that personally, and it was very hard. I was at Bible college already. And I think the more Bible I encountered and the more truth I woke up to, the more light that was shown on my heart. And I began to go, man, my life and what a Christian looks like is pretty incongruous. I mean, it's, it's not a fit here. I feel badly about my sin. And, and I just didn't know if I was genuinely a believer in my most honest moment. 
It was hard. It was a phase I had to work through. And I sought counsel from a lot of people. Um, just different spiritual leaders, pastors. Hey, what do you think about this? It was a dilemma. It was a real thing that I needed to work through. And they were working through this as well. Verse 60, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda. Verse 61, the sons of the priests. Verse 62, these sought their registration. They're, they're saying, where is it? Among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You go, what's going on there? Well, just think about it in terms of the church. Uh, Zerubbabel, who's kind of in charge here, is basically saying, listen, if we can't be certain that they're part of the people of God, then we don't want the line, the lineage, the heritage. We, we don't want the sacrificial system of worship to be tainted in any way. We want to preserve the holy work of God. And Numbers chapter 3 says that by penalty of death, if you touched the holy things, you know, you'd be executed either by temple guards or by God himself. This is very serious business. And so Zerubbabel was being careful and he was protecting God's holiness and protecting God's people from God's holiness in this situation. We do it today in the church as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, it says that we are to only marry in the Lord. We're only to marry believers, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it talks about what fellowship has light with darkness, to not be unequally yoked. We're not supposed to be bound together with our spirituality, with someone else's spirituality. We're not syncretist. In, in a sense, when you talk about the purity of the gospel and doctrine, we want to preserve that, defend it, protect it, guard it, and guard the purity and holiness of truth. And on the other hand, we also want to guard the morality of the church, the purity of the church, the holiness of the church. We want to be separate. We want to come out from the world and shine as lights in the midst of a dark generation. We want to stand out that way, not disassociate ourselves from people. We want to be an outreaching church, but we want to, we want to have light for the unbelievers to come and encounter and see and say, man, I, I either am repelled by that or drawn to that. That's what's going on here as well. But we're not talking about people who are known unbelievers. That's the interesting part of this text. These are people who are struggling to figure it out. And the church should always be wide open to fellow strugglers, right? Wide open to work with people that are struggling. Am I really a believer or not? They couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove where they were. But look at verse 63. You have the solution. The governor told them that they were not to partake in the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim Thummim. What's that? Well, that's Urim Thummim. It's used like two other times in the Old Testament that I found. And that is basically the system in the Old Testament priestly order to discern the will of God. It was like casting lots in the New Testament to find out who was going to take over for Judas Iscariot and it fell on Matthias as the 12th apostle in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you would have a priest, according to Numbers chapter 3, and there's a passage in Exodus who basically 
um, would reach into his breastplate, which is right up against his heart. And that was very symbolic to trying to figure out God's will. It talks about Aaron's heart in the context of numbers there. And it's that he would reach in and he would grab, you know, a fragment of bone or wood or stone. And somehow within those elements, you would get a yes or no answer according to the will of God. That's all I got. That's all I think we really have on that. Um, but that's how they were discerning the will of the Lord. But here's the principle. You have struggling, supposed believers. They're not sure where they fit. They can't find their name on the registry. They can't find their hometown listed. Their name doesn't work. Their family connection isn't working for them. They don't have a role designated for them because they, they can't do that because you don't know if they're God's holy people or not. And so what do we do with them? Do you just throw them out? It's not what it says. It says draw near. It says instead, how do you figure it out if you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation? Draw near to the spiritual leadership of the church. That would be the principle in the New Testament. Go to the priest. Figure out, man, where am I spiritually? Because I need to know. And that's what I would offer to you if you're wrestling with where you are spiritually. Draw near to spiritual leaders so that spiritual leaders can help you with God's word to discern your position in Christ. Very important in the New Testament. It says 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to see if indeed you pass the test. That doesn't have to be a negative thing, okay? That can be a very positive thing. And the take-home points, we're probably not going to be able to explore them in detail this morning, but I would encourage you to find them online or grab a sheet and look at them because I've detailed for you steps in terms of how you can find the assurance of your salvation through some passages in Scripture. That's the first part of this solution. The second part of this solution is simply this. If you're struggling, keep traveling. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. You say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm dealing with, and I, I'm struggling, and my prayers, they're not connecting with God, and I just don't feel like a believer right now. You don't get it. I just want to sort of put myself in the background. That's the worst thing you, you can do. Stay close to the light, because the light will reveal where you are, and that's what you need to know. Draw near to the people of God, and one of the greatest principles that I learned when I was struggling with the assurance of my own salvation was to keep going. To keep fellowshipping, to keep giving, to keep serving, to keep learning, to keep praying, to keep singing. And I found that ultimately I, I just had to rest in the fact that I'm going on the narrow path as defined in Scripture. And I believe the true gospel, so I know what I believe. And then I begin to just continue to persevere in the faith. And I begin to become convinced that only a true believer keeps persevering, right? He who continues to the end shall be saved. And so I gained confidence through what I, what I believed and I gained confidence through the fruit of the spirit that I began to see played out in my life. I wasn't earning my keep. I was just observing what the Lord was doing in my life as I continued on the path. That's how you gain assurance of your salvation. And it's here in this ancient text, right? 
There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing. Just go to the leaders, get spiritual counsel, humble yourself in humble transparency, and, and then don't leave the team. Stay in the, stay in the flow of what God's doing. Stay under the means of grace. That's how it's always taught in Scripture. And look at the hope in verse 64. I love this. I mean, it's just embedded here, but the whole assembly, I love this word, together was 42,630. Together. It's not saying, you know, part of the assembly. Well, those people who were struggling with the register, you know, they, they, they were excluded. No, the whole assembly together is accounted for here. Just assume that things are going to work out. And what are they doing? Well, they have their, you know, the male and female servants that are there. You got the singers. You have then the livestock in verses 66, 67. And then you have heads of families that came to the house of the Lord. So they're there. It's seven months later. And they've shown up. They've arrived at Jerusalem. And they're like, okay, what do we do? Well, you know, let's, uh, let's set up shop and build houses and, uh, you know, Get our satellite dish and put our feet up for a while while we recover. No, they, they say we're going we're gonna to give to the reconstruction of the temple. That's first priority is worshiping God through giving to the house of God to erect it on its site. Verse 68, how much did they give? Great principle here in verse 69, according to their ability, just did their best. Whatever they could do, they just gave. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury to the work. They gave gold and silver and towards the priest's garments. And you have the categories listed again in verse 70. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, lived in their own, lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Guess what? God wins. God's people were taken away. God orchestrated that captivity. But God's promise is fulfilled in the end. They're home safe again. They've come home to worship God. And my heart is that this local church would be your home. And it would feel like home as you serve him there. Now, just to look at the take-home points real quickly, I want to do that kind of to lead us into our communion time. The assurance of salvation, number one, is sown in personal examination. Number two, is rooted in believing gospel content, the truth. Number three, is nourished by observing spiritual fruit in your life. And number four, is harvested through perseverance. Keeping on, keeping on. As the men come forward, I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 11. As we look towards the elements of the Lord's table.